Hi, everyone, and welcome to the RegTech Report, your update on all things RegTech. My name is Carl Viertel, and with me is Stefan Celestio. Our mission is to bring you the latest news, speak with industry pioneers, and news about the latest tech. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the RegTech Report. Um, I'm a little bit lonely, I've uh, got to admit, here in uh, our recording studio in Munich, because unfortunately, Stefan got sick. But I am joined from halfway around the world from uh, one of the most seasoned cybersecurity experts uh, I know, uh, Bob Maley from Black Kite. Welcome, Bob. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So Black Kite is actually one of Mitratech's partners. Um, we actually had the pleasure of uh, hanging out in uh, Nashville a few weeks ago at uh, our Interact conference, which was an absolute treat. And uh, uh, really looking forward to digging into sort of the intersection between third party and cyber risk management. I mean, it's an incredibly exciting place to be. And uh, you guys at Black Kite are absolutely um, front and center. Uh, what's on, you know, what's, uh, on your guys' agenda? What gets you excited? Uh, oh, you mean cybersecurity or what gets me excited about life? Uh, <laughs> uh, I'd say, uh, let's uh, do cybersecurity first and then, uh, we'll talk about some of the, uh, scotch bottles behind you. <laughs> yeah, we can, we can do that. So, you know, what, what's interesting and, and I've been doing this stuff a long time in is, there's so much technology out there that can be used to make these things uh, work, to have a cybersecurity program that isn't uh, burdensome, that is is failing. And But I, I think there's a lot of companies that are bringing out technology that, that just doesn't have a lot of value. So I get excited at Black Kite because of how we, we take data and we take technology and we make it useful uh, to the customers that, that they can reduce their effort, they can uh, reduce their, their risk exposure and, and sleep better at night, essentially. I, I sleep pretty good. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the amount of data that you pull together and, and generate insights is it, it, truly impressive. And I mean, it's one of the reasons that, of course, um, you know, we like partnering with you guys because, you know, we just can provide better insights to the uh, GRC use cases that we build. But for me, one of the most um, exciting parts um, of your work is basically the relationships between the vendors and the insights you can uh, gain from that. Um, can you tell us a little bit about some of that project? Yeah, that's interesting. So you talk about data, and there's a you, you are we have a significant amount. It's uh, information on 34 million companies, uh, billions of of lines of data. I think uh, we have one of the largest. Uh, um, Microsoft databases uh, at at Google, but it's after all, it's just data. And uh, unless you figure out a way that you can uh, correlate that and have insight into that data, it's, it's not all that useful. And, and mm-hmm. I, I talk a lot of times about in, in the security rating services that uh, companies will take uh, a, a limited amount of data about a posture of a company and they'll put a score on it. And I, I find that those aren't really that meaningful because they don't tell you about relationships. They don't tell you yeah. about risk. Um, and and ha- having the ability to look at uh, not just your vendor, but your vendor's vendor and understand uh, the, the, the 
potential of cascading risk coming from there or even deeper. You know, think about it. Most parties, uh, third-party risk management programs, they're doing really good with understanding and, and identifying critical, and, and I'll do air quotes with that, uh, vendors, and they spend a lot of time monitoring them and assessing them. And they'll say, well, we, we do care about who your third parties are uh, that are going to touch our data. And contractually, they ask them to uh, tell us who they are, and it's all good. It's a compliance check mark. But in reality, let's say you have 10 of your critical vendors that you monitor and you, you know very well what's going on there. But all 10 of those vendors have a third party that, well, really isn't touching your data. So therefore, they haven't been identified to you, but they're important to your critical third parties. And that one vendor that's uh, the fourth party to all those, they have an incident that all of a sudden shuts your 10 critical vendors down. What does that do for your business if you don't have insight into what's going on down there? I mean, the exciting part is I, I think that you've sort of reached that critical mass where you can make those deductions, right, on third, fourth, fifth party uh, relationships. Uh, you, you need to reach that critical mass for that to be um, relevant or provide actual valuable insights. And, you know, I saw the the demo or, you know, the, it's probably a beta version of what you're building where you can just drill down and navigate. But I mean, that's essentially... Um, the key to uh, really meaningful cyber risk resulting from third party because you're actually aggregating all that insight up to that one cyber risk that you're exposed to through your you know very um, thin value chain that you have within your company, but you're relying on all the this um, infrastructure below. So it's um, what's your prediction sort of uh, for the next three, four, five years? Is this going to be? commonplace is there going to be the you know one source to, uh, of truth or you know how is how is this uh, data going to develop well there, there's two ways so, so i really feel comfortable with the future of cyber because uh, we keep doing the same thing over and over from as a cyber defender if you look at uh, all the new ransomware uh, things that cisa is telling you that you should do they're not new uh, we, we've been telling people do these things for the last 10 years. So having the ability uh, to know what's going on in your vendor ecosystem, it's only going to become more valuable. And it, it can be challenging. And it's not just knowing who's connected to who. That, that feature that you talked about that's in beta is called Vendor Map. And essentially what that does is it looks at 34 million companies that we have in our database. And we've done a lot of different technical things to make connections. So one of the ways we do that is uh, we, we look at different websites, what plugins people use and uh, what software they use. And, and there's a lot of that kind of information we collect. Plus, we purchase uh, other databases that have companies enlisting their vendors. And uh, people always announce who their vendors are or who their customers are. So we collect and correlate all that. And it's really exciting when you click into that and you don't have any filters, it's kind of like a, a, a 60 psychedelic uh, wall painting because it is so complicated. It, it's not just your vendors, but all your vendors' vendors, and you can drill down uh, at, at <laughs> to, I don't know how many, what, what the limit of depth you can drill to, but it's too much. Yeah. So that's, that's where you take technology and you take, uh, machine learning, and you can apply things 
that can essentially get rid of all the noise and only show you what's really important. And those things are, uh, we have different filters. Uh, so if you want to see, well, who in my entire ecosystem has a certain version of uh, Microsoft Exchange running on the internet, you can filter for just that. Uh, we've uh, added uh, things like, uh, well, I want to be able to see my entire vendor ecosystem and, and how uh, it's affected ha- by having business in uh, Ukraine or Russia. And there's things like that. So it's taking technology to get through all that data to display what's really meaningful. So then you can actually take some action. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, these relationships are you know, it's kind of the holy grail in uh, in vendor risk management that, you know, we've, we've all had sort of, you know, in our mind, this is what it should be. Um, but, you know, data, politics, um, business has sort of been preventing it to date. And so I think this is, you know, definitely going to be a, a real transformational approach. And um, the reason that this is also really exciting for me is a lot of our customers in Europe are, of course, talking to us about um, laws around supply chain in the European Union. So Germany just um, passed a law um, that requires greater diligence in the supply chain. And so, you know, that is step one, that you don't have to model it by hand and uh, really understand more than just, uh, you know, one or two degrees of connection. Um, certainly not without its challenges. And, you know, to, you know, and uh, of course, we're only looking at one dimension here, right? We're looking um, at the cyber risk and, and sort of the, the um, technical health of these vendors. But of course, there's so many more dimensions um, that we can open up and understand more about once we understand those relationships, right? We're talking ESG, financial health, um, compliance, regulatory risk, all those good things that sort of can build upon that network. And so, uh, you know, a very exciting uh, prospect from our perspective. Yeah, I, I agree. Third-party risk management has always been uh, a complicated process. It's not just cyber. It's all those other things, uh, you know, geopolitical, everything that uh, that you talk about. And, and it's uh, the commonality, I think, to third-party risk management programs is that uh, everybody I speak to, they don't have enough people to do all those things. <laughs> Agreed. And to uh, in that theme, I'd like to move on to our second segment. And uh, because, of course, Stefan is sick, I hope, Bob, you're going to help me out. Do you know what time it is? Time for Cyber Basics. So we call this segment Cyber Basics. And the idea behind it is there's so many folks out there that, you know, heard a term, didn't know exactly what it meant, and then that time passes where you've been using it so many times in your slides and your conversations that you're embarrassed to ask about it. But we're not, and so we're going to go back to the basics. And one element that I wanted to uh, dig in uh, on today is ransomware, right? So we all read about ransomware uh, attacks, and you know, if you read some of the um, newspaper coverage, then it's also clear that um, you know a lot of the journalists that write about it also do not know what ransomware really is um so i thought let's change that so um what sort of the core concept at the very base of a ransomware attack so obviously there's ransom in there so someone wants money so it's financially motivated um how do you get ransom out of a business well the first thing i have to say is that ransomware is a very good business model. Oh, yeah. The the problem is it's a good business model for criminals. 
And it's not like it used to be uh, two decades ago that the same person is the, the person that found a way to hack and get in somebody's website. And they're the ones that uh, then defaced the website or did whatever they did. It's no longer like that. It's it's mm. really simple uh, because there's that group of people that they really don't know how to execute ransomware. So all they have to do is they have to find an open door. And that open door, there's multiple ways of, of doing that with mm. ransomware. The two most predominant, one is phishing. Um, and the other one is remote access ports. So open uh, remote access RDP on, on the, uh, the internet. And, and those two, they kind of go back and forth between number one. Used to be phishing was the predominant one. Now it's, it's both of those. Uh, I, I saw a report, uh, recently that, uh, uh, uh Poneman and, uh, there was another company. They did a, a research that they said out of the 44% of the, the companies that got breached, uh, or 44% of the companies that got breached all said, yeah, we, we had, uh, we were breached via a third party and remote access. Mm. So, um, you know, it's, it, those are all, all basic. So, you know, I, I'm going to give you a specific example, colonial uh, pipeline. Yeah. Uh, I saw pictures of people getting gasoline in plastic bags, uh, because it created such a, a run on gasoline because they stopped shipping gasoline. And people think that was a really complicated uh, attack. And it wasn't. Uh, we were able to see exactly how they did it. Um, and the, the thing about ransomware, uh, the, the tools uh, and, and the procedures and tactics that the bad guys use, uh, our researchers, they went out and they, they wanted to figure out, well, is there a way to, to see, to predict? And what we found was that it's really simple. There was a small set of, of failed controls that they were always looking at. And then when there were some of those in combination with each other, indicated, uh, well, yeah, it was more likely. And two of those controls uh, were, well, three actually, was not using a multi-factor authentication, yeah. having leaked credentials uh, on the dark web. And having remote access ports exposed to the internet without being secure. And what we found was there were six remote access servers at Colonial Pipeline, and there were a number of leaked credentials that were on the dark web. And a bad guy put those things together, and he was able to access the inside of their network. Essentially, they got onto their billing system. Now, he's not the one that executed the ransomware. Yeah, he was an affiliate. He used ransomware as a service that you don't need to understand how it works. But what they do is they come in and they inject malware that encrypts systems that those systems are now no longer available to you. And then you have to pay money in order to get the key to unlock the encryption. And it's of course, really simple. And of course, here is the big revolution, right? So you could have written malware let's say in the 80s, right? You could have, uh, you know, that, that wasn't a novel concept. You can encrypt files and say, I only give you the password to decrypt if you pay me money. But you had to go and do some dead drop or, uh, you know, exchange cash or whatever it might be, thereby exposing yourself and, of course, also geographically limiting yourself. So, you know, now you have this global network and the real enabler are cryptocurrencies. 
that provide a certain degree of an anonymity. I think Colonial Pipeline, of course, is a great example where that degree of anonymity reached its um, full or it ha- showed its limitations. Let's put it that way. Um, but I mean, that has been the proliferation of uh, ransomware that you do have digital currencies that you can store anonymously, that you can exchange anonymously. And that's sort of the, the next thing that happens, right? So your data gets encrypted, and then you get an email saying, pay me five Bitcoin, uh, or today, it'd have to be 50 to be worth yeah. anything. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, and then you will get the, uh, the password to decrypt your data. Well, and it's it's even worse than that. Uh, you know, you mentioned that uh, Colonial Pipeline that uh, they got some of it back. The interesting story. I don't know if you've you've seen how that happened. Essentially, the FBI hacked back, yeah, and they got a key and they recovered. I think it was eighty percent of the ransom. But the most interesting takeaway from that is, what do the bad actors do? They go up, oh, jigs up. They just took their game, shut down, renamed themselves, and started up new and used a different, in this case, Monero was the the new Bitcoin or the new crypto because it it had more privacy than Bitcoin. So it didn't really affect them much. Yeah, they had a little loss there, but they just kept going. They're very agile. That's that's really one of the dangers that I see today. Yeah. I mean, the, the the cost of attacks are incredibly low. The agility, the speed is incredibly high. And it's it's whack-a-mole, um, uh, you know, against the losing battle there. But I think um, there are two trends that always um, give me pause when I think about ransomware. So one is, if you have good backups, ransomware should not affect you. And the second is, if you're moving to the cloud and have, you know, uh, proper cloud storage, you shouldn't even be able to encrypt files on cloud storage in a way that would affect you. How, so first of all, how is ransomware still happening? Secondly, wouldn't ransomware become drastically less common with digital transformations and cloud migrations happening more and more? One would think, but let's look at the history of ransomware. Uh, the first ransomware was on a, and, and many people might not even know what this is, but a five and a quarter inch floppy diskette. Uh, yeah. And there was a, an event where there was a, a conference and somebody had had the idea that, well, they're going to put all of the content from the event on a five and a quarter inch floppy and pass it out. And that's what they did. But there was no content. It was just uh, an encryptor, and I think it was they were they were getting a hundred bucks a pop back then to unencrypt, so it was pretty cheap. But yeah, obviously that doesn't scale. And you're right; it's the, the scaling of the activities, how the bad actors have scaled. But we look at what all the things that we can do to prevent ransomware beyond the digital transformation. Just today, the way things are today, it's the basics that people are failing. Mm. And yeah, multi-factor authentication. Now, it's not yeah. the end all to be all, but you know what? Uh, it's a good defense. Uh, just in a football game, they, you know, blocking and tackling. Uh, they're going to go and try somebody else. You know, do, do you have MFA on all those accounts? With phishing, it, it still blows my mind when I look at one of our research report and I see how many vendors out there don't have simple things like DMARC, DKIM, and SPF records to protect their mail. Now, those are not expensive. <laughs> Those are free things that you can do oh, that are simple. 
or just using the web interface for mail oftentimes is helpful. Yeah, exactly. But it, it's all those basics and patching. And, uh, you know, we always see uh, whenever there's a new huge ransomware incident, uh, the government comes out with uh, how you protect yourself from ransomware. Make sure your systems are patched. Uh, why are we still talking about patching systems uh how long has, has operating systems been around? 40 years? Uh, we're still talking about it. And, and I, I see, uh, you know, it, what's interesting, there's, there's always this discussion that, oh, well, we have to stay on that old version because if we upgrade, it will break our systems. Thinking, okay, well, maybe 10 years ago that was a good excuse, but uh, well, how are you developing your software today that you're, 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 locking yourself into an operating system. And then the second thing, oh, but it's full it it may be 12 year a 12 year old operating system, but it's fully patched. And you know, how many patches have come out in the last 12 years? We're talking thousands and thousands. Mm-hmm. And you may have had a, a very good regimen and, and patched every every patch cycle, but are you sure that one didn't fail? And that's why bad actors, when they're out looking at servers, they'll fingerprint a, a server. And when they see an older operating system, they know the likelihood of a patch not being applied properly is high and it's easier to compromise. But these are basics. This is not new. These are the things that we really need to do today uh, to effectively protect our organizations from ransomware. Agreed. Well, with that um, hopeful note uh, that there's still a lot to be done uh, in the cybersecurity industry, um, we have a segment that we call top three because we're usually three folks on the call and everyone gets sort of a top whatever uh, category we might be analyzing, but maybe we can do a top two. Are you in? Sure. Why not? Hey. Hey. Oh. It's the top three. So, at least here in Germany, um, it is getting really dark and really cold. Um, So, you kind of need to find a good indoor activity. And so, uh, you know, my question to you is uh, what is your top indoor activity or indoor hobby um, that, that you enjoy? Well, first, I'm going to preface that uh, in in Phoenix, um, it, it's getting cold, but not that cold. So, uh, yeah, the indoor hobby is is maybe not as important. But for me, uh, I, I've been doing genealogical research uh, for oh, wow. about uh, twenty five years, and when they brought DNA out. Uh, doing uh, the genealogy research via DNA, that to me that that's just fascinating. And uh, uh, it, it also opens up some uh, some pretty interesting uh, stories that you discover. Uh, and and I'll, they're called NPEs. Uh, that's a non-parental event. That, ah. Yeah. With DNA, sometimes you discover that uh, you're not quite related to the people that you think you were the way you are. Uh, <laughs> but it's still, it, it's very interesting. The same thing with, with doing my genealogy research. I always, uh, it's not just who, who, who begat who for me. Uh, it's the stories around the people, where they lived, 
Uh, and, you know, I used to go and it, it was indoor at the state library because that's the only place you could get newspapers, the old newspapers. Now they're online. But some amazing stories that you can find out about ancestors and relatives. So that that for me, yeah, uh, yeah if it snows, which it doesn't here, but if it would, I'd be doing a lot more. NPEs. I like it. Yeah. So. So I had to uh, do a little bit of uh, negotiation with our producer, Javier, before the show because I said, you know, my top indoor hobby is probably going to be some good red wine, but he confirmed that that was an acceptable indoor hobby. So I'm going to (laughs) go with uh, good red wine. And uh, at the moment, I've been getting into a little bit more of Italians. Um, So especially here. So we're very close to Italy. And unfortunately, Italy produces a lot, a lot, a lot of really bad wine, but then some absolutely amazing wines. And so telling the difference is obviously paramount. So um, I'm getting there and uh, I more often than not have a really good uh, bottle of wine than a terrible one. So that's my indoor hobby. Nice. Uh, <laughs> wine, not so much. Uh, I When we were in Italy, we drank a lot of wine and uh, uh, you know, a lot of it was good. Some of it was, yeah, but, uh, it was still the drinking it on location was, was exciting. So <laughs> agreed. Well, with that, Bob, thank you so much for being part of it. Thank you all to our, uh, to our listeners. And, uh, we'll be back soon, um, with a, a new episode of the Rectic Report. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. Let's continue the conversation on Twitter. Follow our dedicated podcast handle at the RegTech Rep 